Hey folks, you're very welcome to this special event on the topic of accelerating onboarding sales reps to maximize revenue and drive productivity. And joining me on today's call are six of the best. That had a very different meaning when I was in school. Dishing out the insight, knowledge and value today are in no particular order. Killian O'Grady and Killian is the EMEA Head of Customer Commercialization at Sprout Social. Previous roles include Vice President of Global Sales at Initify and SaaS and Application Sales Leader at EC EMEA and Middle East Operations at Oracle. Secondly, we have Samantha Stevens. Samantha is a senior sales leader at Gong, having previously worked in various management positions at LogMeIn. Joining us shortly will be Tom Castley, and Tom, of course, is no stranger to listeners of this channel. His most recent role was that of Vice President of MIA at Outreach. He is the, an executive in residence at Brunel University and a steering committee member at the Revenue Collective. Also joining is Caitlin Kelly. Caitlin is a sales manager at Clevio, and Caitlin's previous roles include sales manager of sales development at Outreach, and she's also a co-founder of SDRs Anonymous. Also joining us today is Anthony Parker, and Anthony is General Manager and VP of Sales EMEA at MindTickle, and he is also a founding member of the Sales Enablement Society. And last but not least is Neve Murray Lalanne. Lalane, I beg your pardon, Neve is a Senior Director of Global Enablement at Miracle. Previous roles include sales enablement positions at Sage and Electra. Well, that's our star lineup. The ultimate triumvirate of enablement, sales and technology to help us navigate this important, complex topic. And our agenda for the next 55 minutes or so uh, is as follows. We're going to look at onboarding by discussing how to best prepare for onboarding. We're going to identify the top selling behaviors that onboarding needs to focus on. We're also going to share some best practice in terms of training and coaching for onboarding success. And we'll discuss the process of onboarding by focusing in on the weekly goals that need to be woven into every onboarding program. And finally, we'll wrap up with tips and takeaways from our expert panel. Well, if you wish to ask questions, just pop them into chat. Uh, if you're watching a recording of this, I'm gonna suggest you get in touch. If you have a question for any of our contributors today, just get in touch with them, them directly because there'll be nobody here monitoring it. So with that, let's get started. Um, folks, we, we said we were gonna start uh, talking about preparation. Uh, before we do that, what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to kind of uh, share with us what you feel great onboarding programs need to deliver. So if I could just uh, maybe go to Samantha first and ask you what your thoughts are on that question. Um, yeah, sure. I, I think that a great onboarding program should revolve around goal setting, uh, milestone marking and clear and measurable expectations so that at each checkpoint, you're able to assess where is the person on their new hire journey and are they meeting the expectations, which allows for you to spot pitfalls as early as possible. Cool. All right, Killian, maybe you could jump in and uh, share with us your thoughts on that same question. Yeah, I think it's important that you level set to get everybody who may be on an onboarding program to the same level or same common understanding and use the opportunity both to uh, immerse people in the culture uh, and the expectations of the business as well as uh, then focusing on the specific challenges of the, the role they're going to face. 
Okay, uh, how about you, Katie? What, what are your thoughts? Or Caitlin, sorry, I beg your pardon, Caitlin. No worries about that. Um, so I definitely think for me, when I think about onboarding should contain beyond just setting those clear expectations, I would also consider keeping it simple so it's digestible. When people are starting out in a new in industry or a new company, they're going to have to absorb a lot. And so if you can set those expectations and really explain the purpose and the why behind a lot of the trainings, the skills that are needed, that way they're able to kind of really focus on those and not get kind of overwhelmed with throwing everything all at them at once. So keeping it digestible and clear. Okay. Uh, Neve, what about you? Yeah, I think great onboarding should cover all of the key competency areas. Um, so normally you should work with HR to decide what they are. So industry knowledge, product knowledge, whatever. Um, and to your point, like around bite-sized, just-in-time enablement, um, no drinking from the fire hose, because we know that we can't do that in the first weeks and months. It needs to be measurable. And I think to Killian's point as well, it needs to, you know, you need the person to feel welcomed in the organization, be mm. part of the culture, not only the culture of the company, but also the sales culture. And that's really, really vital. Love it. Anthony. There we go, Tom, you're last. So I don't know how many you're gonna have left. But no, obviously <laughs> there's, some, there's some great ones there. For me, great onboarding should really be designed based on what the, on the buyer's journey, not the seller's journey. So we need to think about the buyer experience and obviously the more ready a salesperson is, the better that experience. So I think focusing the um, onboarding on readiness and designing it based on the buyer's journey are really essential. All right, Tom, over to you. Oh, uh, two, two, if I may. Uh, one is, I, I like to think of onboarding as well being, Neve kind of touched on it, the cultural onboarding as well. Uh, and that builds resilience in somebody who's coming into the business. Uh, you kind of get mm -hmm. this uh, massive wave of expectation where they join and they think it's going to be amazing. Um, the second thing for me on onboarding is bridging the gap between that onboarding kind of the early stage of the relationship where everything's rosy and day two where it's business as usual and organizations need to think about how they come off the onboarding cycle and go into business as usual and that's an area that i believe is is not focused on that handoff between uh, the startup and then the running of a particular person's employment journey Okay, well, maybe what we could do then is to break that down because there's a lot in there in terms of expectations, behaviors, outcomes, that if we kind of go through it and talk about preparation first, how we might do that, and maybe we could look at that through the different lenses, both in terms of preparing the, the rep for onboarding, but preparing the, the team, the manager that, that rep is going to go to, and also I'd like to get an enablement take on that. So we won't necessarily do a round robin. I'm going to just ask for inputs on that as, as we go through it. But I'm going to kick it off. Maybe I'll start with Anthony on this one. I just uh, ask you, Anthony, your own thoughts on that in terms of best practice for preparation. And then as we go through it, I'll just ask for people to chip, chime in on, on that. Yeah, and I'll talk more generally rather than picking up one of those specific um, personas and hopefully hopefully touch on a couple. But I think one of the things that we're seeing um, within within the organisation and also within our clients is a lot more, there's a lot more ability now to pre-board. Um, so getting uh, sales, 
salespeople specifically or revenue generators and protectors, getting those individuals pre-boarded with, with things that are going to be, it's going to be interesting and, and perhaps important for them to know, but to give them that baseline level of understanding. So when they come in and start the onboarding program, either on their own or as part of a cohort, that we're, you're not spending a, a day or so potentially going back over things. So you're really sort of getting that baseline level as high as you can without obviously uh, impinging on too much on people's time. But we are definitely seeing pre-boarding being used more and more. And I think from a from an, a rep's point of view and a manager's point of view, I think Tom mentioned very much that, that handover post-enablement, but pre-enablement, making sure that that manager is aligned with that onboarding journey and actually mm. stands that onboarding journey because a lot of the times the manager is completely unaware and completely uninvolved. And I say it on almost everything, every, everything I attend is that managers are quite often the single point of success or failure. And if you don't get them aligned early enough, then that can have, an, have a detrimental impact on the onboarding. Okay, cool. Uh, Caitlin, I wanted to ask you then maybe a slightly different perspective on that same question in terms of, because I know you've had a lot of experience in onboarding reps, is when it's not done well, how does it manifest itself? What do you see uh, when that rep comes and is, is on the job? Yeah, I think when onboarding is not done well, then you start to see the confidence drop in that rep specifically. They're not going to hit their targets. They're going to have a hard time immersing into the team and the culture. And then you're going to constantly kind of be, I don't want to say putting out fires, but you're going to be putting energy into other things that could have been solved with a clearer onboarding process. So when it's not done well, then you, outside of like the rep not being able to do the, execute their job successfully, but yeah. on top of that, you're also going to have, if, you, if you're part of a multiple team, like for me, when I was managing a team of BDRs and onboarding them, I had six other peer managers. So if it's not done cohesively and well, you can have different teams kind of moving to different rhythms, which then can put you out of sync as well. Okay, so. interesting. Kaylin, um, I wanted to ask you on this, and I wanted to maybe put your old training manager's hat on and um, I'd like to come to Neve maybe for a, from a sales enablement perspective on this as well. But I remember, and I know it's a good few years ago, Killian, but you had a very hands-on approach to the onboarding, or at least that part of the onboarding process that you managed. And I want to I talk to you about the importance of that hands-on approach of being there and being visible. And maybe you share your philosophy on that. Yeah, I think it was it's important um, as, as much as possible to involve leaders in the onboarding process. Um, and one of the things that I was very focused on was making sure that the sales leaders whose teams were entrusted to me for, for onboarding uh, were fully aware, A, of what they were learning and what they were doing, uh, but also were involved in the assessment process um, because we had various assessments people and tests people would have to pass uh, to be certified as onboarded or ready ready to start their job um, mm. and having managers involved in that give them first-hand experience of seeing mm. uh, what their how their team people were being prepared and then also provide mm. the right opportunity from a coaching perspective afterwards mm. there was one or two moments i remember where maybe you didn't get that support from a manager i'm curious to know in terms of advice you might have for people to find themselves in that situation how to deal with that 
I mean, I think it's 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 important to have the conversation with the managers. Um, you know, to stress the importance of on- onboarding is probably one of the single most important parts of somebody's career in the company. Or, mm. you know, um, and you can set them up for great success or great failure if it's done right. Uh, and it is very much a partnership. It's not just the manager and the, the training or the onboarding or the enablement department, but also the peers within the team. Uh, yeah. In most roles I've been in, we've operated a buddy system where somebody will be specifically assigned. Obviously, we want everybody to help, but somebody will be assigned yeah. to work with that new onboarding um, and work them through it. And it's about a very direct conversation. Uh, the manager is going to lose out heavily if their rep that they've spent a lot of time hiring doesn't succeed. Mm. And there's a lot mm. for them to be involved in that process. Okay, cool. Um, Neve, I said I'd come to you next. I wanted to talk to you from an enablement perspective and maybe even just picking up on Killian's point there about manager involvement and that, that preparation, preparing the manager as well as the reps and how you oversee that. Yeah, absolutely. So I think to Killian's point, you know, we need to enable the enablers and the enablers are the, are the, are the managers. And sometimes, you know, I get the roadblock where they will, they will kind of push back on onboarding to a certain extent. You know, they will let the, the reps go through a certain amount and then it's like, can we get them onto calls? Can we get them out in the field? Can we get them on events? And I think, you know, you need to slow down to speed up. You need to make sure that the foundation is there. It's put in place in those first days and weeks. You'll never get that time back as a rep, but also as a manager, because you'll otherwise have mm. to come back to the foundations mm. later on. So it's a waste of time and not efficient for anybody. Um, and also, you know, the, the preparation needs to be teamwork between enablement and the manager. So making sure, like Killian said, that those milestones are in place, that we have certifications, that the manager is certifying, the enablement is certifying, that this is 360 view. Um, and, you know, the buddy is really, really important as well in that. Um, making sure that they have somebody that they can reach out to that's not a hierarchical link within the organization, but that can kind of have, you know, a beneficial uh, impact as well. Yeah, makes sense. And as somebody who I've been involved in onboarding as and I've been in a training room and I've seen that where people are pulled out of the class to attend yeah. meetings and the, the message that it sends, not just to that rep, but also to everybody else really is, it has a disabling effect. There's no question about it. Um, that actually leads us nicely because we do need to move on to the next topic, which is looking at some of the top behaviors that we're getting reps ready for. Now, I know those behaviors are going to be different depending on the role itself. So really where I wanted to focus this conversation were around how do you define those? How do you get agreement on those so that you're not getting pushed back from managers later on saying, oh, they, they didn't have this or they didn't have that. Because that can't be a, a, a simple or a trivial thing to address. Tom, maybe could you address that point first, please? The behaviours. I think for me, uh, the most important one, uh, and it's, it's difficult to teach it, but you be looking for it during the hiring process, mm -hmm. is taking accountability. So my view is there's only two reasons why you lose a deal. You were either outsold or you shouldn't have been in there in the first place. And until you accept that, you're, you can be as coachable as you like. All they'll do is they'll just nod and listen and go back to exactly the same way they did it before. And testing for those changes in behaviors is, is critical. And that will give you a sense of whether they take accountability. And if they don't, uh, then they shouldn't be with you much longer. 
So you're saying a top behavior is accountability. That's your that's top of your yep. list. Okay. Yep. Well, what about the accountability from the managers then in terms of holding the reps accountable for their commitments? Yeah. Uh, well, that would be a manager behavior. Yeah. Don't don't suffer fools. That's don't that's take yeah. Best. yeah. 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 Yeah, I often think it's an it's an oversight, but okay, cool. So I like that. So accountability. Uh, let's uh, maybe go to Killian next on that one. Uh, if you could just add to that for me, Killian, on top of that. So we have accountability. What 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 would you add? Yeah, I think one of the key one of the other key behaviors or attributes you need as a salesperson is um, confidence, and it was referred to earlier you know, the lack of confidence or how you can lose it. Uh, but it's something mm. that you need to display even when times are tough um, mm. and that, in that you've, you've, you've got to try and build into your onboarding program is, you know, help build people's confidence. I, I, I'm curious to know how you do that because I'm, I'm, I have in mind this kind of a, <laughs> I have this visual of a stick and, and I've got to beat them until they're confident. Sorry, this is, you understand this is me, <laughs> but, but it's joking aside, what can you do, like assuming that you're hiring people who have a level of confidence, what are you, what is a confident dean, I guess, is, is, is what you're looking for, or is it just general confidence? So I, th I think there's a couple of things. I mean, you can learn confidence, and one of the techniques and one of the things you can do is practice what you're going to say. Uh, and mm. I think a lack of confidence displays in a lot of cases is when somebody's asked to ask a difficult question or they're in a tough negotiation and they're they're not feeling comfortable. And the best mm. way to prepare for that is to actually record yourself, listen back to yourself, practice the question you're going to ask. Mm. And that's something you can do during onboarding is to rehearse and practice. And we do a lot of role plays in our onboardings. And that gives people the opportunity to actually practice things they're going to do. Um, yeah. You know, if you look at any profession, the more you practice, the better typically you're going to get as long as you're practicing yeah. right. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense. It makes sense. Uh, and Eve, I'm going to come to you next on that. But uh, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but I can imagine people coming through that onboarding. They're new in an organization. They're going to have some concerns, fears, worries, etc. And, and it's a real opportunity to, to, to build up that confidence throughout the process by giving them opportunities to learn and praising that as well. So I, not something I thought of. So I like it. So we have accountability, confidence. Uh, Neve, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I think the ability to team sell. So, you know, coming in, you need to align, you need to orchestrate with your team, whether it be BDR, SDR, account executive, account manager, and just making those connections in the first days and weeks and getting that 360 feedback from those individuals or those team managers. Again, it's just mm. a leading indicator that can show that, you know, this person not, is not here to hero sell. This is part of a complex mm. organization where we have multiple touch points with our buyers. And we want to make sure that that person is aligned with everybody in general. Mm. And is that team cell, is that something that is formal part of, you know, kind of classroom type education or is it something that you're looking to uh, enable on the job? So a little bit of both. It's definitely within the sales process. So what's the race? Who are we looking at? You know, who is in charge of which part of the process? Um, but then we're also getting feedback. So touch points with the manager regularly. Um, just to see, you know, how's that going? Are they interacting with their BDRs? Are they interacting with their partner sales managers? Whatever it may be, mm. um, and that feedback is essential. So quantitative mm. and qualitative mm. feedback on, on mm. those. Mm. There may be people, Neve, not 
100% familiar with RACI as a term, if you could just maybe share that for people so that yeah, sure. I, th I think it's a powerful concept. Yeah, so who's responsible and accountable at every stage of the process? Who is responsible for the interaction with the customer? Who's accountable? Who's contributing? Um, so it's, you know, mm. it's just, again, a way of saying through the sales process, who is, who is involved, who should be involved, and how the different pieces of the puzzle are interacting together. Okay, cool, thank you. Uh, Caitlin, what, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so when I'm thinking about like some top 10 behaviors when onboarding a rep, one of the things that I'd be looking for is um, humbleness, so their humility. Are they able to come in, their open mind? A lot of the times when you are onboarding, reps could be at different stages within their career. They could be just getting their mm. first job in sales or they could be more experienced and have different viewpoints that they could be bringing to the table. So I think of when some when I'm bringing somebody on the team and onboarding them, are they humble in their approach? Are they open-minded to trying new ways out? Are they leveraging the strengths of their teammates? Kind of mm. on the back of the team selling right there as well. And just making sure that they don't come in thinking that it's their way or the highway. So are they showing that humility along the way? That's a that's a kind of a nice foil for Killian when you're talking about that confidence, the humility, I guess, stops that confidence from becoming into arrogance. Uh, interesting one. So we have accountability, confidence, team selling, humility. Uh, Anthony, what would you add to that? Yeah, um, I think one of the most important parts, so from my perspective, of, the, of that of the sales cycle is is the discovery. It's mm -hmm. also an area where I think salespeople overestimate their ability to do good discovery. Um, so mm -hmm. one of the things that um, is a barrier to that is curiosity. So curiosity would be um, natural curiosity and not just having a checklist of, of questions to ask and go through like you're doing a survey, but mm -hmm. actually the ability to ask a question. Um, you haven't paid me to say this, Paul, but you do very well on these podcasts. You ask a question, you listen, you respond, you go deeper that's just, it's a natural conversation. It's not an interrogation. And that comes from mm. curiosity, but it also comes from practice because lots of salespeople, even with 10, 15 plus years experience, do not do good discovery in my opinion. So that's a really mm. key area to focus on. Mm. Uh, I, I'm learning very fast that trying to do it with six people at the same time is not. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. Uh, Samantha, would you, I, I have I, there's a, something that I'm hearing though in people's comments, which I want to come back on later, which is the sense of objective versus subjective. So things like uh, accountability, yeah, that could be objective if it's. I'd, I'd be curious to know how uh, confidence is more subjective but you can train for it. Humility is subjective. Discovery is more objective. So uh, what I wanted to ask the group was, and I'll come to Samantha next, but we'll pick up on it, is how important are the behaviors subjective or is it okay to have a mix of subjective and objective? But Samantha, uh, last but not least on this, on this topic, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's two that uh, I agree with everything that's been said. And I think there's two that have not been accounted for, which is uh, intrinsic motivation, right? So mm. desire to get better than you were yesterday and not compete with those around you, but rather compete with yourself. Um, so I think intrinsically motivated people tend to be much more open to coaching, much more open to um, my next one, which is vulnerability, right? So mm. like 
um, vulnerability is super important to a team's culture and making sure that when somebody comes onto a team, they understand that like not one person on this team is perfect and that mm. it is okay to mess up and like you're never going to mess up so badly that we can't fix it together. So I think that encouraging like failure on the road to success is really important because it's the only way that you're going to be able to pick yourself up, be resilient mm. and gain that confidence, right? Um, so I think that vulnerability and encouraging that aspect within a team culture is very important. And um, I think that when you find people that are intrinsically motivated, that comes quite naturally because all they want to do is get better than they were the day before. Oh, that makes sense. I like it. I like it. Um, for people who have just joined us, we're talking about the top behaviors that onboarding needs to deliver or that salespeople need to execute on that part of that onboarding is seeking to deliver. And if you'd like to add to that list, we've talked about some really important ones so far, but just in the comments, just put in your own thoughts on what you feel to add to the conversation that you would want to add in terms of a behavior that you'd want your onboarding process to focus on support and enable. Um, but I wanted to come back to you very quickly, folks, on the topic of subjective versus objective and all of the challenges that come with maybe a behavior being subjective, how you measure it, etc. Um, and I want to just open it up general thoughts. I'm not going to invite any one particular person, but if you have something you wanted to add or speak to that, just hit spacebar and, uh, and just chime in. I'll start, actually, if you don't mind. Please. Um, I think when it comes to every, te every team has its own culture, right? Mm. So um, your culture rolls into essentially the VP's culture, the VP's culture then rolls into the company's culture. Um, but there is also like essentially there's subcultures. Um, mm. so when you get a new person onboarded within your team, I think um, having an established culture that everybody on the team lives by that folds into the company's operating principles and the way in which we work is mm. it makes it easier to measure some of the subjective uh, expectations, right? Um, so you're able to essentially talk about how you expect people to like yourself to be held accountable. Mm. Uh, when people think about team, you know, X, what do we want to be known for? How are you going to hold yourself to those, the, the vision, the mission, the values of the team? Um, and that's where I think it makes it easy to measure those subjective. If I've understood it correctly, Samantha, what I'm hearing is if you have a culture and even if a behavior is subjective, that if, if it fits with the culture, it feels right. And it's, th and it's that that we're saying is... Is it measurable or is it just something we can go, yeah, that feels right? It's, it's, that, I guess that's the question. And, and I think feeling right is important. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not sure how you measure it, but, but, but I get it. I get what you're saying. I think it's not something I thought of before. I think it's a, is anybody else, that, that's a really interesting uh, way of looking at it because generally speaking, we often think of sub objective good subjective bad because we can't measure and what you can't measure you can't control but then it's what you're saying is we'll know if it's not there 
but is, yeah, is a, a simple, sorry, Karen. Sorry, I was going to actually ahead, ask Samantha. a question back. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 we'll ask, we'll ask it to Tom then. How about that? Yeah, I guess the question is, what do you consider a contribution to a team rather than a detractor? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting one. Contribution rather than detractor. I think that's a, that's an element of um, more. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of the word that's anti-maverick. Uh, so a maverick in a team can actually be really helpful if you're kind of stuck in the mud. Uh, and those people can be a real change agent within an organization. But normally within the onboarding process, and I always kind of look to the military for this, is you know when you join the Royal Marines, um, you go through selection, that's the interview process, and then you start training like mad and doing your pre-prep so that when you turn up, you can do all the activities they expect you to do, which was to Killian's point earlier. But then you don't specialize at that point, you go through basic training. It's uh, the reason why they do all the infantry stuff and the marching day in and day out. And the reason they do all the inspections of the uniform is to have everybody at a common denominator level. And then they're happy for you to become, you know, and guess what? The Mavericks end up going into like the SAS and the SBS because they think outside the box and they're creative. But you don't have many of them in the armed forces because then you have complete disarray. Um, what I would say, one of the ways to bring that in, and, and, and just to the point earlier, Paul, where you're talking about subjective and objective, uh, at its highest possible level, I think uh, anything that's objective is probably a frequency, things that you're asking people to do. And if you're asking them to do it and you can't track it in the system, then it's automatically becomes subjective, which is not a comfortable place to be for tasks and jobs to be done. Mm. The subjective stuff is normally a competency, a skill or a capability. Mm. And you would need in today's environment, modern frameworks like Gong, for example, you know, to be able to review those together and to get peer review on that. Um, I'd actually, um, as I've just been put on the spot, uh, Caitlin, probably one of the best deployments of this model, uh, running the SDRs at Outreach and really thought very deeply about, because there's a list of 50 different frequencies and 50 different competencies, but worked out what were the ones that mattered in those, in those early days. Caitlin, would you be comfortable just sharing, spending a couple of minutes to, to talk, talk to that? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I had a feel, cool. feeling Tom was going to do that the second he mentioned uh, frequencies and competencies. Um, so really what it was, it was just kind of breaking down what are the frequencies and the competencies that are going to drive the outcomes that I'm looking to hold my reps accountable on. So that being from like a BDR, SDR perspective, it'd be, um, we call them sales, so sales accepted leads. We're looking at conversion rates and pipeline generated. So when I look at those three outcomes that I'm looking to achieve on a month over month basis, what frequencies and um, I'd keep it simple and consistent for my reps so that we can track it over time to kind of watch that periodic growth. And it also points out coaching opportunities along the way too, when you reflect on the previous month, but mm -hmm. within those three outcomes, it's talking about the frequencies that we would need to execute in order to achieve that. So that's looking at, okay, outbounding efforts, LinkedIn um, activities, it could be sending videos, it could, anything that's quantifiable would be along the frequency metrics. And then we go into the competencies, it's thinking more about, okay, what are the skills 
that we're looking to develop as we're doing a deeper discovery or a deeper qualification. So there's different types of skills, for example, that we are implementing, such as like a reward in reverse. So how are we kind of, when we're in the middle of kind of a cold call, how are we rewarding reversing specific objections to really unpack the pain that we may be getting pushed off for? Um, or overcoming um, competitor push-offs, how are we kind of unpacking? What are they loving about their current tool or tech stack and understanding that from that perspective? So that would be more of like a competency where we can then dive deeper into and then you would quantify each one of those frequencies or metrics to grade them. So I had a scale system for points where they'd give themselves a one, a three, or a five Three is hitting the expectation, like, all right, you hit your expectation, you're doing your base salary job. And if you gave yourself a five, then there was like bandwidth within that. But if you're doing a five, then you are exceeding on that frequency or within that competency. Oh. If you're falling within the one, then that's where we'd have a coaching opportunity, or maybe that would be the frequency that we'd focus on in the next month to improve our outcomes that we were achieving. Oh, that's a long-winded way to explain it. Well, it's it sounds like a highly uh, developed, evolved process to put in place. Um, it, it must take a lot of time and energy to inspect it and to make sure it, it runs. I can only imagine it's, it can't be easy. Hats off to you for, for doing that, for sure. Uh, Conscious, we do need to move on though because of time and there's a couple of other topics that we said we'd touch on as part of this uh, conversation on onboarding and so maybe Jonathan I could come to you and we're going to talk a little bit about training and coaching and the, the topic was around specifically coaching cadence but I'd also just value your thoughts on the elements of, say, training first, what should be formal versus on the job. And then more importantly, because I think it's the most important element, is the coaching and the coaching cadence and how you set yourself up for success with that. If you could uh, address that, please. Who was that for? Was that for me? That's for Jonathan. Sorry, Jonathan. Yeah. Sorry. I beg your pardon. Yeah, sorry. I thought, why, I why am I... <laughs> I, I, I did that. I, sorry, I, I have no excuse. <laughs> Anthony, I'm so don't sorry. Worry, don't worry about it, Darren. We're all good. Um, no, uh, so, yeah, so if, I, I didn't know if that what question was for me, so I, but I, I, it I, was. I've got the gist of it. Um, I think for me that the coaching part, and we, we meant, I touched on it earlier, getting the managers involved as quickly as possible during the onboarding phase is critical and then building a program that starts to reinforce and assess as quickly as possible is essential. Tom generously gave Gong a, a call out, so I'll give my own uh, company, Mindtickle, that has similar technology and also is for, for reinforcement purposes from enablement. It, it, it really is critical that, that companies, regardless of what technology they're using, what um, that, that they actually leverage the benefits of this because technology can make it more automated. You can start bringing in that peer-to-peer -peer learning. You can start benefiting from data. And if we've got a, a wide um, enablement uh, audience listening to this, being data-driven now is more important than it's probably ever been in the last four or five years. And I include the pandemic because money is starting to get very tight. People are looking at where they can make efficiency cuts and people are looking for impact. And if you aren't 
telling a data-driven story about the outcomes and the impact that your enablement programs are having, obviously onboarding, it's the money and the investment that companies are going to be prepared to make in enablement is going to, is going to start reducing. So I, I think that coaching piece is critical, reinforcement is critical, and using technology to tell a story about the impact that enablement of having all of those things are, are probably more important now than they, they probably ever have been, certainly in the last five to 10 years. Anthony, thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. I, 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 do you know what I was thinking? Why, why would I, Jonathan, I, I, it must be the Bram Stoker book on the, in, in the library behind you. That's my only thoughts. I apologize. Um, Killian, I wanted to come next to you on that one because everything I've heard so far and I'm listening to, it's actually, it's exhausting. And there's so much in terms of defining criteria and cadences and there's the technology and there's the measurement. And for some companies, onboarding can be a matter of days. For some, it's weeks. Is there a risk that you lose sight on of the, the individual, the, this is the wrong word, but the humanity or the, just the, the nurturing sense of making sure that that individual is nurtured through the process when there's all of this other stuff that they have to learn and they're how they're being measured it is coming at them um i think it's not just for onboarding i think we we've always got to put our people first and i always think about the teams i've led is that it's a group of individuals who share the same job function as opposed to a team of sales mm. i think if, if you have mm. that mindset that you are always on the lookout for your people making sure that they mm. are able to cope with whatever whether it's the barrage of onboarding and being a priest mm. of the fact that you're new to an organization and that in itself is a big change mm. irrespective mm. Of you learn nothing or not so i think it's, mm. it's incumbent on us always to be very mindful and watch how people are coping because mm. you if somebody's not coping for whatever reason um it's a massive additional pressure on them and they're not going to be successful so mm. as a sales leader help our people be more valuable to themselves, the organizations, the community. Um, yeah. Keep an eye for that. Yeah, that makes sense because I'm thinking also of companies that ha might have a quite a, uh, a, when I say evolved, quite a long onboarding process. My own experience is it seems to be they're, they're hired, they start, and then three weeks later, maybe four weeks later, I've even seen six weeks later, the, the manager takes over and what I'm hearing from you is that really that, that manager needs to be, because it's not enablement's job, I don't see, but you tell me if I'm wrong, to uh, be that guide or to manage that transition or just take care and nurture of the individual through that process. Um, I don't know if it's black and white, but I, I would have thought that the manager needs to be involved much yeah. earlier on in that process. I think it's a partnership for everybody involved in yeah. helping develop that person. So it can be HR, yeah. it can be the manager, it can be peers. Yeah. Um, I mean, le learning is a lifelong thing. It's not, doesn't end with your formal onboarding to the end of your formal onboarding. And again, okay. we're looking for people who want to continually learn and to Samantha's point, to be able to do something today that maybe they couldn't do yesterday. Okay. And that's the mentality that you're always, there's always th new things to learn. We all learn yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Partnership's the, the answer. Um, 
Samantha, I'm going to come to you next because we've got a question and I see that you were started to answer, so maybe we could answer for the group. Um, and it's come in from uh, anonymous attendee. So uh, anonymous, <laughs> uh, a great question, by the way. How can you exactly identify a great attitude? The rest can be trained, but attitude is everything. So I'm going to start with you, Samantha, but I'd like to get a couple of inputs from others on this one as well, because it is the perennial question. Uh, how do you how do you how do you assess attitude? Sure. Had I known it was going to be uh, visible to you that I was typing an answer, I don't know that I would have started typing. <laughs> I can see everything. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think that it's something that it's hard to put a finger on, but I certainly think a leading indicator of somebody with a great attitude is a person that does kind of have that intrinsic motivation, but also mm. the humility aspect and the willingness to admit when they've made a mistake and take action for how to actually mm -hmm. get better. And I also think that um, grit, grit, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think about grit, um, somebody who's willing to stop at nothing in order to mm -hmm. overcome something. And you can ask certain questions within the interview process to assess those situations. Mm -hmm. um, just simply for like, tell me a time in which you've had to um, overcome a long period of obstacles. Like, how did mm. you feel that? Um, it's, I think it's, I think that's something that. Yeah. Okay. So you can just certain questions that look for evidence of some of the traits that go into a good attitude is what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense. Perseverance. Yep. Yep. Yeah, maybe yeah. Paul, I'll add something there if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. So I think once they're onboarded, the attitude thing, I think if you get together as a kind of a group between enablement, the hiring manager, and maybe the buddy, and you mm. have that kind of surround sound and discuss the person, how are they getting on? You know, what are the indicators? Are they mm. going through onboarding? Are they doing everything right? And oh, by the way, you know, in terms of attitude, what are you seeing? And you will, you know, most of the time hear the same feedback. And that, yeah. that can kind of reassure because it's not just you thinking that this person has a bad or a good attitude, but actually yeah. you're reassured by the group. Yeah. Uh, I'd also like to make a case if there is an external trainer in the room that they're asked as well, because the number of times I've seen it where you'll have a group and, and it, it never seemed to, to amaze me is that you'd have a group and what they're in the company, sometimes days and you'll see people showing up late. I remember one guy op opening up a map on a table looking at where they were going to go that night and I'm kind of thinking if it's if, if, it, if that's happening now is early on uh, what's it going to be like later on and, and I, I maybe it's if we have time we can come back to it how we can also use onboarding to catch because you're always going to have leakage in any hiring process it's 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 so open to it um, but Tom I know you are a fan of assessments and I'm wondering, have you ever used assessments to try and identify or assess attitude in, in any way? Uh, uh, yeah. Yes, because, uh, for example, you know, an abundance of pipeline will cover up lots of cracks in a sales process and an abundance mm. of phenomenal uh, candidates and new hires 
can uh, <laughs> bridge over the cracks in an onboarding process as well. It's a lot easier to onboard great candidates. So, uh, yeah, I'm highly selective when it comes to uh, the interview process. Um, did everything possible to ensure that the objectivity and the interview process was as strong as possible. Uh, we had diversity in the hiring teams uh, to ensure you get different perspectives and you're not just hiring people you like. And one of the key components to that was uh, running an assessment tool. And so they were functional assessments rather than uh, kind of the usual criteria court type stuff, which was just looking at smart people. We were looking at attributes and traits uh, of successful salespeople. And that allowed us to really drill into what mattered during the interview process. So in other words, you'd have an, an element of the interview, which was very specific to the skills and competences that we were looking for, for the role. And again, mm. I think that helps if you write a really good job description, guess what onboarding gets easier and, and mm. uh, new hire attrition reduces and all the rest of it. Uh, but then mm. to actually focus in on those areas, nobody is perfect when you hire them. So understanding mm. those gaps early, talking them through, and actually giving the candidate a sense of the importance that you put to those gaps and the fact that you're willing to work with them and develop those areas actually drives a huge retention program as well because they can see themselves progressing. Um, okay. But yeah, huge, huge fan of assessments. The, the, the public health warning on that is in the current economic climate, only about 25, 30% of people will fill one out. Uh, so you need a lot more pipeline for candidates coming in. Uh, the way to de-risk that slightly is to have the first interview as more of you pitching the the opportunity that's available to that person should they be willing to invest mm. the time and effort to go through the process. Okay. I'm just curious, is the fact that people don't fill it in, is that indicative of attitude or is it just, it's just, it, yeah. it's the market? I, I, I don't lose any sleep over the people who aren't willing mm. to fill them in. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good argument for front loading it is too. All right. Good stuff. Um, thanks, Tom. Uh, we do have a question and thanks, Samantha, for helping clarify that. I, th I think it's, 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 uh, so I'm just going to read the question for others who haven't seen it. So when you say ramp targets, what do you mean? Revenue or specific milestones? Sorry, I beg your pardon. That's Samantha's question. Sorry. I should have started higher up. Thoughts and experience using RAM targets during probation period, important or not? Okay, and Samantha asked back, um, and the answer from Andrew was both. Outcome targets hit, uh, i.e. Uh, DCs, booked, etc. DCs, what's DCs? I'm not familiar with. Direct conversations? I'm guessing, I don't know. What does that mean? Discovery calls, all right, thank See, it's getting shorter all the time. It, it was discovery calls, then it was discos, and now it's just DCs. <laughs> I, I can't keep up. I can't, th thanks, thanks, Andrew. Got it. I've learned something new today. Um, uh, but sorry, uh, I would, and sorry, Samantha, maybe just for other people who are, who are not reading the comments and who don't see that, maybe you could just talk to that for a moment, please. Uh, sure. I um, I would consider having ramp targets as um, critical to the success of the person that you're ramping, um, uh, especially during the probationary process, because I think it ensures transparency between the manager and the new hire, and it 
you don't put yourself into a situation, you know, in month five or month six of their probation where they're blindsided by the fact that you've decided to extend their probation or it might even turn out that like when, because you're doing these continuous check-ins and these little milestone markers and having these targets, um, they might decide that it's not, it's not worth, it's not for them, right? Mm. So it can be mutually mm. beneficial um, because that transparency is there and you're constantly setting goals and checking them off. And also too, we're salespeople, right? Mm. When, when it comes to being a salesperson, you, I have found in my experience over the last, you know, eight, nine years running teams, if a salesperson's not chasing a target or they're not booking business, they get down on themselves. So mm. I find the best way to offset that is to set other milestones that they can chase. Like let's go for tearing your entire book of business by X date. Let's go for setting up, you know, eight discovery calls or first round meetings in this week. You know, let's go for generating X amount of pipeline. Let's track how much of that pipeline we're gonna convert. Those are the things that you can measure that lead them towards success and make them feel as though they're accomplishing something, even if the number is not on the board. So that's my take. Like it. All right, Anthony, just want to um, put in the comments, or sorry, Andrew, in comments, just if you're happy, if there's, you got that answer. Um, thanks, Samantha, I appreciate that. Uh, we need to move it on. The final topic we were going to discuss today was on the idea of weekly goals. And this, the first place I saw this actually was in Sander where they were onboarding new franchisees. And there was a 90 day plan, 13 weeks. And each week you had both technical goals to reach, i.e. you had to, for example, get your computer hooked up or get your apps installed, whatever it was, but you had to set yourself up. And then there was product targets you had to learn about specific product features and then you also had sales you had to be maybe able to stand and deliver your elevator pitch by the end of week one and it was tied in with the managers uh, or in those cases it was the the franchisor um, who would then at the end of every week inspect that and I guess I want to throw it out I don't know what that looks like in your world and I want you to talk to that about how important it is and what it looks like and how people who are not doing it uh, can, can get started in terms of you know resources etc so um, let's get that going first if you don't mind and um, Anthony I haven't spoken to you in a, a few moments maybe you could uh, kick us off on that one yeah no no problem at all I think yeah I everything that Samantha said earlier completely agree with I think this is that's exactly the best explanation I've heard for it and the best way of actually doing that, um, making sure that there's those milestones and that clarity. I think when it comes to enablement, there's a lot thrown at people all, almost at the worst possible time with the least amount of context. So one of the things that we like to do within our organization also recommend to our, our prospects and clients is having that ability to get the people going through onboarding to not just maybe pass an assessment or answer a few questions, but actually present back what they've taken away. Because the one mm. thing you will learn if you if you ask the, however many people are listening to this, what their key takeaways are, they're all going to have different answers. They're all going to have remembered something differently. 
And it's only when people articulate that that you can actually see where the gaps are. Clearly, you can't get them articulating and wrapping up everything they're going through or it'll take forever. But on mm. those key elements that you really need people to be at a certain level and uh, understanding it, that's when you get them to articulate it again. You can do that the old fashioned way. You can do it using technology, but it is important that you get the individuals um, explaining what they've learned, because if they can't explain something and they can't do it in a succinct way, they don't understand it. And you're about to let them go live with your prospects and customers. And that's that's too late to correct it at that point. Yeah, for sure. Um I'm just noticing there's a few comments coming in uh, from panelists as well on this topic. So I'm going to jump to you just to, to, to add into uh, what Anthony was saying on that as well. So thanks, Anthony, for that. I'm just going to go to maybe Tom and Samantha, and, uh, Samantha uh, on that one. So, Tom, I'll come to you first. What are your... Uh, yeah, so i just, just gave that away. After every training session, I like to ask four questions of everybody. Mm. So what was the most interesting thing you learned? And it's always mm. a different answer from everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, what was something new that you learned? So again, you start to identify what the gaps are. What are you going to put into action straight away? And then how will we know that you've, yeah, and how are we going to measure that? And then to take the weight off the manager or the trainer is create accountability partners in the group mm. and then have somebody in the group say, right, you're going to present to us next week on how they did and did they actually enact it? And then the, third, or the final one is, uh, what do we want to dig into next time um, as the fourth one? So, or, you know, what, do you, what did you understand or what don't you agree with, that kind of stuff. And I think yeah. having that regular framework on, on every session uh, allows you to create a learning experience at the end as well. Yeah. Uh, Richard agrees with you, by the way. He says, uh, like this one, Tom. Um, Samantha, you were saying about, you absolutely agree with that. I get a weekly recap from you hire three highlights and one low light. I wanted to ask you about that then, Samantha, is, is that, is that an electronic report? Is it an email they send or is they, is, are you having a kind of a coaching call with them and discussing it? Yeah. So actually with my new hires, I do two one-to-ones a week. So I have, um, a separate coaching session at mm. the start of each week so that we can frame up. What are we focusing on? And um, like with Gong, I would listen to certain calls of theirs. So we'd start with, you know, the start of a call, like right, the early stage calls. Um, and we would recap those. I get them to tag me in uh, five calls a week. And then in oh. the coaching session, we would go through those. Um, and then the, the next one would be kind of like the milestone marking if they're like very early on in their ramp or pipeline, pipeline review, et cetera. But at the end of every week, I get my new hires for their first like three months, pretty much. Um, I get them to send me three highlights and one low light mm -hmm. um, because, and like the highlights are learnings, right? So it's mostly like, mm -hmm. what did you learn this week? What'd you take away mm -hmm. from this week? Where do you think you might've fallen down? Um, and that's where the low light is. And that gives me areas to work with them in our one-to-ones. So like, specifically the lowlights. It helps them surface up oh. maybe opportunities or areas that I'm not necessarily covering that I need to oh. cover. And they highlight that, like they put it in as a lowlight. So it's not necessarily them feeling as though they're giving me feedback or the business oh. feedback. And it gives me an opportunity to create that trust and address that too. All right, cool. Thank you. Thanks for that, Samantha. Um, folks, I, we're going to be wrapping up very, very shortly because we're up against it on time. 
for uh, people watching this online, I know you can see the, the chat, but this is too good not to go out in a podcast. So for those of you, I just, just a couple of comments I want to read into the record so you can hear those as well. This is from Tom. Uh, he said, for weekly, use agile development feedback loops. What did you achieve last week? What are you aiming to achieve this week? How will you know you've been successful? And what blockers are there that you could impede you? And I love this bit. Can I help? Um, although that's in brackets. <laughs> is that like, can I help as I'm walking? No, I, I, know, I, I don't mean that at all, because I, I, I know it's fully meant. Uh, and it helps with self-paced onboarding. And Neve added, face-to-face -face or live calls are great for this. Can't beat a human-to-human -human interaction. You get feedback and attitude, you're, and you're absolutely right. So it's so true on that one. And then Tom has another comment for weekly use. Is that the same? That is the same one to comment, Tom. Yeah, it's just duplicate in there. All right, folks, we are, we've got only about three minutes, back two minutes left. So what I'd like to do very, very quickly is I'm going to go through the, the six of you. And in 30 seconds, I want you to give me something that you heard from another panelist that you thought, oh, I really like that. So not something you said, but something you heard somebody else say that you feel ought to be shared and picked up by everybody listening to this. Uh, Anthony, I'm going to start with you first. You're at the top of my uh, panel here. so. Yeah, I think Neem mentioned it uh, during the, the uh, intro, which is about less is more, micro, not... This drinking from the fire hose is, is so counterproductive and so old-fashioned mm. now. And I think just hearing that from somebody who's a practitioner at the top of her game, it's 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 something that needs repeating. All right. Love that one. Neve. what about you? I was going to say Tom's agile development feedback. That's the key takeaway for me. I think it's uh, really actionable immediately. All right. Cool. I like that. Killian? Um, I think the example Samantha gave of the sort of tasks uh, you can set for new hires uh, are milestones mm. for, for very, impact, mm. very impactful. Okay, cool. Samantha? Um, I, I really loved that uh, Tom's list of questions, like the, the agile feedback loop um, mm. and what did you achieve last week? I think it, I think that might come in month three um you know the the highlights and the lowlights might advance into that type of a cadence but i really i appreciate those uh those questions that he listed out there okay uh, and tom last but not least uh i liked killian's call out on the pre-onboarding preparation being really thoughtful about how you can help people from offer to starting role they want to get started. It's a bit like when you buy a, a sofa from a shop. I always want to take the sofa that's in the shop home and they tell you, no, you have to pay for it in full and wait 12 weeks for delivery. That for me is the gap between signing an offer letter and then starting onboarding and anything you can do in that middle window that allows people to hit the ground running when they join, really thoughtful, going to implement that. Fantastic. We're 26 seconds over, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and the insights you shared. And again, you know, this is not sponsored by anybody. These people, just for people listening to this, have given up their time to share these. They're experts in their field. And uh, yeah, I just want to say on behalf of everybody and myself, thank you so much for joining me today.